Brain Revisited, the Neuroscience of Parenting. I'm your host, Dr. Jody Paluski. Today, it's my pleasure to have Professor Dave Gretton, who is the director of the Center of Neuroendocrinology in the Department of Anatomy, University of Otago in New Zealand. Welcome, Dave, and thank you for being here with us. Well, thanks for the invitation, Jody. Great. I know you from when I was an undergraduate, and you're no graduate student, um, for all your work on prolactin. And I'm pretty excited to talk about prolactin because I was reading your review recently, and I think I overlooked the role of prolactin in the brain. I had a lot of assumptions that it just, we knew so much about it. And in fact, I don't think we knew very much about it until your work. So I think this is important for people to understand when we're talking about maternal brain, the importance of prolactin. Yep. Um, yep I and I guess we all assume prolactin. Yeah. And we all assume prolactin is important for motherhood because we, we all understand, I think, that it has a role in lactation. Right. Before we jump into your work, maybe you can first tell us a bit about what prolactin actually is. Well, prolactin is one of the uh, hormones from the anterior pituitary gland. And um, as you said in your introduction, it, it's, its function is most closely associated with prolactin. I mean, that's the basis of its whole name. Um, prolactin is uh, promoting lactation. And, and I guess it's called that because that was the function uh, that was first discovered when, when the hormone was discovered, you know, almost 100 years ago now. Um, it was identified on the basis of a, it was a hormone that promoted lactation. But I think, um, and, and while, while it's absolutely essential for its role in mammals, I think we have to keep in mind that um, prolactin as a hormone is, is present in all vertebrates. So that's fish and amphibia, reptiles, birds. Um, they all have prolactin and clearly it's not involved in lactation in any of those animals. So it's probably simplistic to think of it as a lactation hormone. That's one of its functions in mammals, um, but it's a lot older and it does a lot more things than other species. So I guess one of my, one of my things that I've been trying to do is have a much wider perspective about the different roles that prolactin might be doing, even in mammals, where it also has this major lactation role. Yeah, and I think this is super important because I we often talk about one hormone or one uh, neurochemical doing being responsible for one thing, but as we're starting to realize or talk more about the, the multiple functions of certain hormones, so I think this is fascinating to think. In fact, prolactin is in non-mammalian species, and so obviously has a that's outside of lactation. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, in, in the field, the people that have been studying prolactin, have, it's almost a, a cliche now that um, that prolactin has over 300 different functions. And, and um, in my lab, there's always a bit of a sort of a game played about, you know, can we find, uh, you know, another one, number 301. Um, and and at, at some level, it's really hard to think about a, a hormone having so many different functions. And, and you try to think from a biological perspective, why would that be? And And so part of my thinking around is actually putting this together again and not so much thinking about many different functions of one hormone but how one hormone signal requires the body to do many different things pregnancy and lactation is an example of that where you've got a relatively limited numbers of signals um, telling the brain and the body what's going on but so many of our systems have to change and so there's um, you know prolactin is one of those signals and many many different systems 
responding to that by behaving differently to match this physiological state. Yeah, so let's talk about prolactin during pregnancy and the postpartum period. How exactly does that profile change in, in our bodies? Um, it, I mean, it's, it's species dependent, um, but, but pretty much all species show elevated prolactin during pregnancy. Um, in rodents, it's elevated very early in pregnancy and stays high um, for the first half of pregnancy. And then in the second half of pregnancy, the placenta takes over and produces a placental lactogen, or actually a, a group of placental lactogens that um, act on the prolactin receptor, essentially take over the role of prolactin in the second half of pregnancy. In humans, prolactin levels essentially rise linearly throughout pregnancy. And at the same time, placental lactogen levels rise almost linearly um, starting from around about um, the week uh, or the end of the first trimester or e even earlier than that possibly. So you've got really, really high levels of these hormones in the blood during pregnancy in pretty much all species, particularly when you think that the placenta is also producing a prolactin-like hormone. Um, there was a really, I mean, for me, a really great study that came out a couple of years ago where they did analysis of um, just a proteomic analysis of all of the proteins in the human mother during pregnancy. Um, and they measured over a thousand different proteins and, and tracked them through pregnancy. And the top 1% of, of hormone showing um, increases during pregnancy included both prolactin and human placental lactogen. So these are dramatically changing in pregnancy. Wow. And then, so, and what happens postpartum then? So postpartum is interesting. Again, even though it's rising through pregnancy in many species or it's high in pregnancy, in almost all um, animals, there's a, there's a further rise just before parturition. And then there's a dip at, at parturition, particularly the placental lactogen is, is obviously all lost with, um, with birth. And pituitary prolactin is also uh, stops around about the time of birth. But then you get the new stimulus associated with suckling. So as soon as the uh, nursing of the, of the babies begins, the suckling stimulus generates a, a new surge of prolactin. So it's high in both pregnancy and in lactation with a little sort of blip around the window of, of parturition. But I think the mechanisms that are driving it are going to be completely different in those two times. Yeah, and it, it just you mentioning this, I think, um, you know, during pregnancies, there's so much prolactin around. So, and obviously you're not lactating. So it just speaks to the idea that it's doing many different things that are important in, in motherhood for the progression to motherhood, I should say. Yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess the, um, if, if you think of it from a lactation perspective, uh, the very high levels during pregnancy um, are important for development of the mammary gland and making sure that the mammary gland is ready to produce milk at birth but but in fact the duration and the levels of prolactin um, is far longer than is required for that development of the mammary gland and, and i believe it's certainly having functions in other tissues many other tissues to promote um, adaptation to pregnancy now how does it work in the brain then maybe you can walk us through that during pregnancy or even in general because it's relatively large molecule correct that isn't right. produced in the brain. Do I have that correctly? Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a that's a quite a difficult question to answer. Actually, um, is, is it produced in the brain? 
my 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 answer to that would be no it's not um but over the course of the last 20 years there have been a number of studies that have identified it in the brain I, I guess I've got several lines of evidence why I think it's not produced in the brain, but I guess this is still a somewhat debatable fact. The, it's, it's one of those great difficulties of science, isn't it? Proving that something doesn't happen. Yeah. And I can do a number of experiments to prove something that doesn't happen. You think, well, did I just do it wrong? Um, but anyway, my, my, my thinking is that it's, it's not produced in the brain. And, and maybe the best piece of evidence is we can, we can look at the cells that respond to prolactin. So if we give an injection of prolactin, into the blood or into the you know, subcutaneous um, and then we look in the brain half an hour later we can use certain markers to show which cells have responded to that prolactin if there is anything produced in the brain it's not in significant amounts to cause activation of those cells that we see when it's injected into the blood so i so i think that all of the prolactin that is reaching the brain is coming from the blood and then there's another question of how does it get there because you're right it's a it's a very big molecule and you would predict that it should be um, prevented from entering the brain by the blood-brain barrier. But actually, it's very similar to, a, you know, there's a class of hormones, uh, things like leptin, growth hormone, uh, even insulin, um, which all seem to be produced in the periphery and cross over the blood-brain barrier. And, and there's really good evidence that there's some sort of transport mechanism involved, but actually, we don't really know what that transport mechanism is. But you can you can show experimentally that it happens, but we still don't actually know what it is. But it's very very rapid, and and um, and as I say, we can we can we can give a uh, exogenous prolactin into the blood and and actually see a response within a few minutes in the brain. So it's it's getting into the brain in significant quantities. So I think when it's produced in the pituitary gland or by the placenta, it can act in the brain almost immediately. And so then, I mean it. it... Where does it act in the brain? I'm assuming because you said there's like 300 different functions it has, so there must be multiple brain sites. So perhaps this is a too general of a question. Yeah, well, well, when we talk about those 300 functions, I mean that's in a range of different tissues. I mean it's acting in the brain, but of course it's acting in the mammary gland, it's acting in the liver, it's acting in the pancreas. So a lot of those functions are not in the brain, but within the brain, um, we have characterized receptors through quite a broad expanse of the brain mostly the hypothalamus, so several regions of the hypothalamus, the preoptic area, uh, bednucus tria terminalis, and, and quite a number of interesting areas like the amygdala, um, periaqueductal gray in the, in the midbrain, and, and um, certain nuclei going down into the, into the hindbrain. So it's quite a broad area of parts of the brain that are responsive, and I guess we are only now just starting to touch the surface of all, you know, what are all those different cell types that are responding and what might they all do? Okay, so then let's, maybe let's center on pregnancy and motherhood. What does prolactin do in the brain during these times? One of the things that um, started me interested in, um, in the whole action of prolactin in the brain was just trying to understand how it is that prolactin gets elevated in pregnancy. Uh, because under normal conditions, uh, there's a negative feedback system where prolactin essentially controls its own secretion by negative feedback. So when prolactin goes up, it activates certain pathways that will inhibit further prolactin production. So as with all negative feedback systems, they, they functionally end up um, with relatively stable, low levels of a hormone. 
And then I was interested in the question as to why does, you know, how is it that it can go up during pregnancy um, and not be turned off by this negative feedback? And we know that the negative feedback is driven by a population of neurons in the hypothalamus that produce dopamine. Um, and the dopamine is then inhibitory on the pituitary gland. So I guess the, the very first experiments that I was doing of looking at prolactin action in the brain was just to try and understand that feedback pathway and how that feedback pathway might change in pregnancy. And our idea was that maybe they, um, those neurons become desensitized to prolactin. So they lose their prolactin receptors and therefore prolactin can no longer turn itself off. And that idea turned out to be completely wrong, you know, and, and actually we've worked for 20 years now on that question and maybe we're getting somewhere near an answer to it. But as soon as we started doing those experiments, we, we found the prolactin receptors on those cells as we, as we had expected. But it was very apparent there that there were many, many other cells that expressed the prolactin receptor. Even within the hypothalamus, there are many different regions expressing the prolactin receptor. And so for the, for the last, um, yeah, close to 20 years now, um, I've been asking myself that exact question is what, why would so many different brain areas have prolactin? What might it be doing? And I've been thinking about it along the lines of the idea that, well, these are going to be most important when prolactin is high. And when is prolactin high? It's high in pregnancy. So I started thinking about, well, what might prolactin be doing in, uh, in, in pregnancy that could account for all of these different neurons having prolactin receptors? And so we've been focusing on a number of things. The, the first, and I guess the obvious target was maternal behavior. Um, and that was because of work that, that Bob Bridges had done many years ago showing that injections of prolactin into, into rats could promote maternal behavior. So we were interested in, in the fact that prolactin, as well as stimulating lactation, promoted maternal behavior. And those two things are obviously compatible. But then we started looking at all sorts of other areas that were expressing the prolactin receptor. And, and I, it was actually um, the, the maternal brain meeting, as it, as it was called um, when it first started, that, um, and, now, and you're now involved in, in organizing the latest iteration of that parental brain. When I first went to that meeting, I was listening to all sorts of people talking about the different systems that are changing in pregnancy. The fact that the stress axis changes, the drinking changes, food intake changes. And I started thinking, what's driving all of those different changes? You know, what, how does the brain know that you're pregnant? You know, what is the signal? And, and I've been working on the idea that prolactin is that signal. And so we started looking at all of these different things. Is prolactin involved in the stress axis? Is it involved in food intake? Is it involved in um, physical activity? And, and I think it's starting to hold together quite well that actually prolactin influences many of these different systems. And, I, and I'm thinking of it as a, like a, a sort of a global signal to the brain that the, the female is pregnant and many different systems have to change. So rather than it being multiple different functions of prolactin, the single function in, the, in pregnancy is just a signal where pre, you know, pregnancy is happening and then all of these different systems are adapting. And, and, and we're sort of picking them off one at a time and looking at well, how does it affect maternal behavior or how does it affect food intake? But I think, you know, in reality, it's, a, it's an integrated response where all of those things are changing to help the mother adapt to her new state. That's fascinating, in fact. I, I've never thought of prolactin in that way, but now I see, you, you know, it's potentially this kind of trigger to get the body 
prepared for all the things around motherhood. So it has a huge pervasive role yep. in helping uh, a woman proceed or become a mom, essentially. Exactly. So that's exactly the idea that we're, that we're you know, that the big picture idea that we're working on. And uh, I think it makes a lot of sense, actually, if you, if you stand back and think, well, what are the signals? There's, there's a few things you could think of. Progesterone would be another one that, you know, is, a, is obviously a significant pregnancy signal. But, you know, remember what I said earlier on, you know, the placental lactogen, prolactin, these are the top 1% of protein hormones changing in the, in the blood during pregnancy. They're ideal signals um, for the, the development of the, of the fetus. Yeah. Beyond lactation, you talked about maternal behaviors. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how prolactin works in the brain in regulating maternal behaviors. Yep. So, so maternal behaviors, um, I think there's been a, a, quite a bit of work from the likes of uh, Mike Newman and Bob Bridges um, over the years, Alison Fleming. A, a number of people have characterized a, a sort of a neuronal circuitry within the brain that seems to be required for the ability of a mother to look after her babies and, and to display the appropriate caring, nurturing behaviors at the right time. And prolactin seems to have a role in, in triggering the onset of that behavior. The work that we've done is, is in a mouse model where we've been able to specifically knock out the prolactin receptor from very specific parts of the brain and we targeted the medial preoptic area. And so we were able to show that if we knocked out prolactin receptors only in that area, and the rest of the brain left it intact, the rest of the body, all of the prolactin receptors were still there. Uh, when we did that, those animals um, just abandoned their babies at birth. They had completely normal pregnancies, as far as we can tell. They actually even went through the motions of the, of the, the right sort of behaviors. So these are mice, so what they typically do, they give birth um, they um, clean up the babies, they eat the placenta, and they gather the babies into a nest um, to keep them warm. So our mothers did all of that. But then sometime in that first night um, of looking after the babies, they kind of lost interest. And they just then pushed them out of the nest and abandoned them. And the only thing that was different about these animals is they didn't have prolactin receptors in their medial preoptic area. So we're, I mean, in terms of how that works, we really, that's work that's ongoing at the moment. But what it seemed to us was that, um, was that the brain needed the signal to reinforce the behavior. It, the behaviors were sort of there, they were doing the right things, but, but after a while they just couldn't be bothered or they weren't interested in it. We, we've been thinking about maybe it's somehow triggering the rewarding aspect of why they keep doing it. Um, so prolactin, in this specific brain area seem to be absolutely essential in, in the mouse. And now, you know, we're just trying to understand exactly what is it doing? What are the cells that are mediating these responses? How do they connect to other cells within the brain? Yeah. So, and these mice, I mean, do you need to be lactating to, to show these behaviors? Uh, no, I mean, these behaviors really have to start before lactation because, um, because the you know the lactation de depends on the maternal behavior the, the mother has to show the behavior to allow the pups to latch on to the to the um, nipple and to be able to feed so so really the behavior comes first that has to be done to enable the 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 suckling stimulus to to occur 
which is what generates the milk release. So, so this is a behavior that, that, you know, it's absolutely essential that it is activated at the time of birth. And obviously in the, in the mouse, at least it requires prolactin to, for it to establish properly. So I guess when I think about women and some lactate and some don't lactate, I'm wondering what happens to the, the prolactin signals in those cases. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think because, because prolactin is produced throughout pregnancy and there's also placental lactogen, that um, pretty much everyone is exposed to very, very high levels of prolactin throughout their pregnancy period. Um, and that will be uh, stimulating a, a range of adaptations, potentially including the, the, the changes in the brain um, that are associated with behavior and, and responses to the young. And I guess the way I think about it is that is that those responses are then reinforced throughout the lactation because the prolactin is again stimulated by the suckling stimulus. And every time a mother nurses, she gets another burst of prolactin and that reinforces the, um, the signal that is going to that mater maternal circuit, if you like. And in the women that don't lactate, those changes will still have occurred during pregnancy. They will have, you know, the, the, the system will have been set up, but they won't be receiving this uh, ongoing, this ongoing sort of reinforcement of, uh, of through prolactin signaling. I mean, it's kind of an interesting one because once you get into, once you get into lactation, the level, the prolactin stimulus becomes very, very entrained to the suckling response. And, and now it's doing something quite different it, um, because now, the role in milk production becomes paramount um, and and the actual amount of prolactin that you get is completely dependent on how much suckling occurs um, and and that's really about optimizing the right amount of milk production for how hungry that baby is and if you've got twins you've got twice as much duck suckling so you make twice as much prolactin and you make twice as much milk and you can adapt to the, how much milk is required the interesting thing about prolactin in, in lactation is it doesn't become a conditioned reflex like may happen, for example, with oxytocin, which is the other key lactation hormone. Even women who are, are, are not breastfeeding and, and maybe just feeding the baby with a bottle will get a burst of oxytocin because that becomes a conditioned reflex to the sounds and the smell of the baby. But the prolactin release is absolutely dependent on the suckling stimulus. And so women who aren't lactating will very quickly um, have their prolactin levels drop down to, to very low. But as I say, I think the, a lot of the adaptive changes have already happened in, in those women during pregnancy. And, and so it's not a catastrophic loss to not be lactating um, and not have that ongoing stimulus. Yeah, so it sounds like prolactin really is this trigger for a whole bunch of things during pregnancy to uh, help the mom transition to become a mom. And then in the postpartum, the main focus is, is with regards to lactation or, at, well, it responds to the lactation. But yeah. its real role or biggest role was during pregnancy to set yeah. things up. Yeah, I believe that. But we, we now know that some of the other things that it's doing in lactation, as well as um, producing milk, it's still having effects in the brain. So for example, the maintenance of a period of infertility, at least in the mouse model, we've now shown that's absolutely dependent on prolactin. So if the, the mice are lactating, but we've knocked out the prolactin receptor in various parts of the brain, 
they will come back into estrus almost you know very very quickly as well as producing the milk it's still having functions in the brain um, to promote just you know the appropriate physiological changes interesting now because i'm always interested in maternal mental health i know you've done some work with regards to prolactin and anxiety during the peripartum and i'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that Certainly one of the axes that we've been very interested in is, uh, is, this, is the mental health aspect of it. And I guess we haven't done a lot of direct experiments in that area, but we have done some relatively simple things um, to look at, at, at things like anxiety and potentially depression. But what, one of the most interesting experiments that we did in that area was there was a, a, a paper from um, a group in Canada um, led by Sam Wise that uh, showed that during pregnancy, there's increased neurogenesis in the mother. So um, that's in the, the adult brain is making more neurons and, during pregnancy in a particular area of the brain called the subventricular zone. And he showed at that time that it was the prolactin that was driving those new neurons. And of course that didn't surprise us because that fit with our big picture idea, uh, hypothesis, but it was super exciting um, to think of wow, prolactin is actually causing new neurons in the brain of the mother and helping her adapt. And so we did an experiment where we just, the, the, the stimulation of, neuro, of neurogenesis was occurring very early in pregnancy. And we, we used some drugs where we could block prolactin secretion at that very window of time when it was stimulating the neurogenesis and showed that we could prevent the rise in neurogenesis that happens um, in, a, in a mother. And when we did that, the animals were able to um, to continue their pregnancy and give birth normally, but we observed that they had some unusual um, characteristics in that if we stressed them slightly, and what we did is essentially just took the mothers and their babies and moved them to a clean cage. So from their home cage, which had all the nice, right smells of home, and we put them into a clean cage, a brand new cage, which, and that's quite a stressful event for the animals, but it's not a massive stress. If we did that to a normal, untreated mother and babies, they coped with it just fine. And they eventually just looked after the babies again. But if we did this to the animals where we had prevented the neurogenesis, blocked the prolactin early in pregnancy, and we did this, the mothers would just completely lose it. And they would abandon the babies and just walk around the cage and just looked completely stressed out. And so we started doing some actual analysis of what was happening. And it turned out that using a particular behavioral test called the elevated plus maze, we, we were able to show that they gave the impression of being much more anxious. So somehow the high levels of prolactin in early pregnancy and the stimulation of neurogenesis in the mother um, had led to um, an overall reduction in anxiety during pregnancy and that helped them deal with this whole new situation that they were in of looking after pups. But if that, if we blocked prolactin and that, and that activate that stimulation of neurogenesis didn't occur, then the animals became really anxious. And while they could cope with that under normal conditions, if they were put under a slight stress, then they would completely lose it. And, and we, we thought this, we, we're thinking of this as a really nice model of a, of a sort of a postpartum anxiety that that was driven by the hormonal changes of pregnancy not working completely properly. 
I honestly think that prolactin will be part of the picture uh, in terms of a mother's mental health, both during and after pregnancy, because it's just impacting on so many different neuronal systems that it will be it will be part of the the things that are that are changing um, and that might contribute to mood disorders. Yeah, that makes sense. Moving back to your neurogenesis study for a second, those subventricular zone neurons migrate to the olfactory bulb and are important for olfaction. Yes, that's right. So I'm wondering, because it seems to me if they have, if those mice are in their home environment with their babies and they're happy, everything goes is going fine, but you've moved them to a new cage with new smells, perhaps it's a stress or the, an inability to get the feedback, uh, the olfactory feedback and process that properly. Do you think that's possible? I mean, it seems yeah. like it's, it would be directly related to an olfactory cue. Yeah, I agree. I think that's the, the most likely system that is working. And, and olfactory cues are so important to rodents in particular in terms of how they interact with the pups, you know, the feedback, the smells, etc. I, I absolutely think there's, prob- there's probably that system is not working properly. And, and then yeah. it's, a matter, it's a matter of trying to design the right experiment to show that. But I agree. Yeah, like they can't process new olfactory memories or something. So then they they can't function in their new environment. Yeah, Strain. I agree. Yeah. But olfaction is also really important for parents, right? I mean, we usually like the smell of our babies, except for when we have to change a diaper. But <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, it's certainly something um, that I've heard anecdotally, um, and probably there, there may well have been really formal studies of this, but mothers, in fact, parents, but particularly mothers, really... Uh, reporting during pregnancy that there's a change in their sense of smell, heightened sense of smell. Um, and then once the baby is born, a, you know, a real recognition factor of that sense of smell, and that's part of the, the, the forming of the relationship. So I, I'm absolutely convinced that these same pathways are, are working in, in, in women as well as in the, the animal species that we get to study. Yeah, definitely. And I think sometimes we forget about these subtle changes and I you know olfaction visual acuity can change in pregnant women um, our ability to recognize our infants just on touching them apparently exists so there's a lot of really interesting subtle uh, cues that moms are processing probably without even knowing it yeah it's interesting it's interesting so uh, now I I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about dads and prolactin. Yeah, well, that's a really great question. Um, you know, I talked before about the fact that all these vertebrates have have prolactin. So there's a whole lot of animals that don't lactate that have prolactin. And, and the same is true within the mammals, of course. In the mammals, only the females lactate. Um, and yet males have prolactin too. So what is it doing? And and I, I, you know, I've been studying prolactin for, for 30 years now, probably. And um, I must have been asked that question so many times. And for so long, I was just a good question. I I really don't know. Um, But it's with this more recent work that we've been doing with maternal behavior made me start to think about this. And and I'm thinking now that, um, you know, that that lactation is just just another parental behavior that has been added 
to a suite of parental behaviors that occur in all animals. Pretty much all animals show some aspect of parental behavior. Um, and it's certainly, it's really well characterized in birds, um, which obviously don't lactate. Um, and prolactin seems to be involved in a number of those behaviors, particularly in the bird species, for example, prolactin is involved in the brooding and in defense of the nest and all sorts of various things that that nesting birds do, it involves prolactin. So, I, so I've started thinking now about actually what, pro, what prolactin might be is, is this sort of global parental signal. And in mammals, we've just tacked on a new adaptation, which is lactation. So of course you, you use the parental signal to drive lactation. And if that's true, then maybe prolactin is gonna be important in parental behavior in male mammals as well. And so we've started to look at that um, and Actually, I've got a, a postdoc, Christina Smiley, who came from a bird background, um, studying prolactin in, in parental behavior in birds. And, and she's now working on that project with me. Um, and we've got really good data now suggesting that in the male brain, prolactin has a role um, to promote parental behavior in, in the fathers. Um, and so I think we're just really starting to tease that apart now, um, but, but I think it's gonna end up having quite similar roles. What's really remarkable though, is that the levels of prolactin that, that are in the blood of a male compared to a female are dramatically different. Uh, the females have been exposed to these massive levels through pregnancy and then the suckling induced response in lactation, really hugely elevated levels. The, the levels in, that are in the blood of a male are several orders of magnitude less. And yet, if we block those prolactin levels or block the receptors in the brain or knock out the prolactin receptors in the brain, we affect the parental behavior in the male as well. So, so I think prolactin is also acting on those same circuits in the male brain. So as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking, okay, pregnant female has huge change in prolactin, which is kind of this trigger to help her become a mom. But then even with lower levels of prolactin, parental behavior happens in dads and i'm assuming yep. probably in adoptive parents so yep. so is it that the high levels doesn't make the mom the biological mother respond quicker or is it just because there's so many other tissues and actions of prolactin that she needs a lot of high a lot of prolactin going around her whole system when she's pregnant yeah i, I suspect it's the latter i i suspect the, yeah. the level the levels are there because there are many, many systems and potentially the mammary gland is one, maybe that needs a lot. Um, but I think some of these neuronal circuits maybe don't need that much. Um, and as long as they've got the re prolactin receptor and they're seeing enough prolactin, um, it's having these effects. Um, but you know, th 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 those are difficult questions to answer um, without, you know, at the moment we've kind of got all or nothing type of tools. Uh, the best tools yeah. we have at the moment are knocking out the receptor and so you go from having a huge signal to zero signal um, and not really much in between but but i think comparing the males and the females has been really informative in that it's having quite biologically similar effects at you know levels that are several orders of magnitude different yeah i think that's fascinating and i guess i'm assuming we would see the same in adoptive parents for example i mean 
people can learn to parent, right? So you don't have to be a biological parent. So I'm imagining that prolactin would have a similar kind of role in parenting behavior. Yeah, I, th I think it's likely to be um, permissive, but it is an interesting question about, you know, as I said before, in, in lactating women, you need the suckling stimulus to get the prolactin. But, yeah. you know, but there have been a number of studies um, uh, in humans showing, for example, that fathers have elevated levels of prolactin. And it's really not, it's really not clear what the, the signal is. And, and in certain um, primate species that, where the whole family gets involved in what they call allo-parenting, again, yeah. the, the uncles and aunts and brothers and sisters that are looking after the, the babies, they tend to have higher levels of prolactin. But they're not really dramatically higher like you see in lactation. So again, it's more like the male situation where maybe they're twofold higher than is seen in a in an animal that's not around babies, and that seems to be enough. Whereas in pregnancy and lactation, we're talking about you know thousandfold higher uh, levels. Um, and so, yeah, there there are going to be differences I think between what's happening in the mother from the other people that might be involved in parenting. But I still think that your, your, your hypothesis is right, that probably the, the presence of the prolactin receptor in the brain and the fact that the ligand is there and it might be slightly elevated is enough to help promote those behaviors. Now, I mean, we're, all, we're talking about the first time parenting and are there differences with the second time? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are. Um, I can't really, we, we've done very little uh, experimental work to look at a second pregnancy. And so I'm really relying on um, other people's work here. But, but in the prolactin system is definitely different in the second time around compared to the first time around. I guess the evidence suggests that the brain becomes more sensitive to prolactin. And in fact, the prolactin levels in the blood tend to be lower. Um, certainly, in, even after a woman's been pregnant and been through lactation and, and weaned the baby, her prolactin levels for the rest of her life tend to be lower than they were before the pregnancy. And yet, the sort of prolactin-dependent behaviours like maternal behaviour appear to, appear to be better. So, at least our current thinking is that after a pregnancy, the brain becomes more responsive to prolactin, and it stays that way for a long period of time, possibly ever. So it really does, well, pregnancy does change your brain. Yeah, hopefully in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, quite often in a good way, I hope. Yeah. Um, well, it's too late for me now anyway. So. Yeah. Uh, so my next question would be, I mean, what's next in your research on prolactin? It sounds like you have lots of different things going, but maybe what's what are the most exciting ones for you? I mean, there's several different levels to that question. I mean, one of, one of the things I really want to do is, is to start to translate what we know from our animal work into human pregnancies. And so I've actually got um, a, a quite a large group of, um, of researchers in New Zealand, obstetricians and endocrinologists, who, are, who have been hearing me talk about this for a number of years, I guess, that have finally said, well, we need to look at this in, in women. I find it amazing that you know these hormones are the top one percent of of proteins changing the blood during pregnancy but they're not routinely measured and not for anything yeah and, and i and i think that's because the assumption has been it's all about lactation 
And if lactation fails, which it does, we can fix that. You know, we can just give them a bottle and it's fine. And so nobody's really thought about that, that differing levels of prolactin might be important for all the other things that are happening, mental health, changes in glucose homeostasis, you know, all sorts of different things. And so I'm, I'm really starting to try and excite some of my um, clinical colleagues into the idea that we need to be measuring this and we need to be measuring it routinely and seeing whether changes are associated with different outcomes in human pregnancy. One piece of data I was super excited by, and I guess this is somewhat in a bad way, but um, one, one thing um, that's been shown recently by Peter Cattini in Canada is that obesity in pregnancy or obesity preceding pregnancy, so going into pregnancy uh, already with, with obesity, leads to significantly lower levels of placental lactogen production. You know, that's interesting because obesity in pregnancy has been associated with all sorts of complications, higher rates of gestational diabetes, preterm birth, difficulty lactating, a whole range of different things that don't work quite properly. And of course, this is a big issue now because levels of obesity in our whole society are increasing. There's many more women that are going into pregnancy already obese. And so we're seeing greater levels of various complications. And Peter's work shows that that might be associated with much lower levels of prolactin than a normal. And so, you know, again, nobody's really looked at this. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm excited to try and to try and get some data um, looking at pregnancy studies. And we have access to actually quite a number of uh, pregnancy cohorts that, that have got biobank samples. And we know the outcomes of the pregnancy and we've got blood from during the pregnancy. And so we're going to start looking at that. And so I'm very hopeful that that study will, will get off the ground and we can learn a bit more about what's happening in women as, as, um, and, and how consistent that is with the, the work we've been doing in the um, mice. Yeah, and I've also, oh, sorry, sorry go no, ahead. I just want to comment because I think that's well, absolutely so important to look at what's happening in women with prolactin. And it's true, people don't measure or report it. I mean, you see serotonin, cortisol, estrogens, progesterone, oxytocin, but I don't think I've come across anything with prolactin because like you said, we just assume it's for lactation. It's in phenomenally high levels in the blood as well. It's just, it's so unbelievably high that it's kind of like, you know, well, how could there ever be a problem? There's bucket loads of it. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, maybe it is important. It seems more likely to me that it's important than not important when there's so much of it. Exactly. So after talking, I mean, we've been talking about this for a few minutes now, but then I think, but there's tons of prolactin. So it'd be an easy thing to, to measure. No one's been measuring it, but I mean, of course it makes sense to measure it in regards to other uh, pregnancy related complications because no one's lactating in pregnancy. So, or very few people, that's a very rare thing to have happen. So of course it's there for something. Yeah. And I think, I mean, how am I going to say this? I think you're, there's a stigma with the word prolactin essentially, right? It's just lactation. So we forget about it. Yeah. And so you have to fight against that to actually see all the benefits of understanding prolactin um, for maternal health. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, we're seeing things that we would never have predicted. I'll, I'll tell you one brief story. One of the things we've been really interested in over the years is uh, the metabolic changes that happen in pregnancy our women um, gain weight, their appetite increases, they gain fat, and they become leptin resistant. All of these things um, 
that are metabolic adaptations that you can see are beneficial adaptations. It's a physiologically appropriate time to gain weight because you're preparing for the metabolic demands, et cetera. So we were really interested in whether prolactin was involved in stimulating appetite and stimulating food intake. And so we put a bunch of mice where we'd knocked out the prolactin receptor in the brain into metabolic cages um, where we could measure everything, essentially measure their food intake, measure their energy expenditure, measure their behavior, whatever. And we saw actually some relatively subtle effects on food intake. It was quite disappointing. There were nowhere near the sort of dramatic changes that I was hoping to see. But while we were doing this, we happened to have a running wheel in the cage. You know, it was just part of the setup. So the animals had a choice if they could run on a wheel or not. Um, and of course, rodents love running on a wheel. If you, if, if you have a wheel in a cage, that's what they'll spend their time doing. Pretty much all night, they'll run on a wheel and they can run several kilometers um, or even up to 10 kilometers in a night running on a wheel, which, you know, you th if you think of rodent sized legs, that's a hell of a lot of running. Um, yeah. And, and so that was fine. And we had the animals in the cage and they were running. And what we, what we noticed is that on day one of pregnancy, it's like as soon as they were pregnant, they dramatically changed their running. They, they basically halved as much their running on day one. So as soon as they're pregnant, suddenly they were no longer interested in running on the wheel. Basically then just throughout pregnancy, their levels of voluntary running on the wheel went down and down. Throughout lactation, it was completely turned off. And then as soon as we took the pups away, bang, they were back running 10K again. And so this, this behavioral effect that we really had never predicted and we'd never seen in the literature, it was just a behavior we never predicted. When we looked at the animals that didn't have prolactin receptors in the brain, they just kept on running. So somehow something that prolactin is doing in the brain is telling the animals to ch completely change their behavior, stop doing something that they really love doing for reasons that we don't really know yet. It might be about conserving energy. Um, it might be about their body temperature. It might, you know, it might be about whether they find it rewarding or not, but it's just a really striking effect. So prolactin is doing things we would never have predicted. Um, and that, that's what I find, that's what I find exciting. It's just, it's, it's having a power effect, effect on the brain. And it's almost certainly to be doing that in humans as well. And just how that manifests in humans, we just really don't know, but, but it's, it's going to be having some significant impact on people, how they feel, you know, what their mood is like, what their motivation to do things is like. Yeah. How did you go? Did, did, how was your exercise during pregnancy? <laughs> Mine? You know, I think I had, I was like, I had too much education about things I should do. I, I'm not a huge exerciser, but I stayed active and lots of walking near the end. I know people, though, that are runners and that continued running during pregnancy all through it, but they found the rewards of running really important for their mental health as well. That's been my impression as well. And, and certainly the, the women I have known who are runners tend to keep running in pregnancy. And so this, it, it hasn't, you know, that doesn't really immediately stand up as something that might be the same as a rodent in the human. But if you look at the data, something like 80% of women, of pregnant women don't maintain the same level of exercise that they've done during pregnancy that they did before pregnancy, even though they are heavily educated that exercise is safe, exercise is beneficial for them and their baby. They're told that, but despite that, 80% of women don't do it. 
and and you can look at that and think oh that's probably just you know you're uncomfortable or you're tired or whatever but i'm now thinking well you know your hormones are telling you something yeah and maybe it's a combination maybe there is the the tiredness is increased a bit and for a reason right because you need some a certain amount of rest to because your body's functioning to make a baby i mean it's a lot of stuff going on there but yeah i think there's a, important signals and sometimes i think women ignore them and you know if if you're thinking i need to rest and just rest that's probably what you need and so i i think we have a system our physiological system is telling us what to do but sometimes we ignore it i mean i can tell you our cat just gave birth right. and during the pregnancy that cat she ate and she slept and she wanted to be pet right. that's it right but i think we can learn a lot from animals because they're so in tune with oh absolutely yeah, their physiology that we're not as much. We have a lot more thinking. We process like, I should be doing this. I should be doing that. Instead of just being like, whoa, I really need to sleep right now. Or I'm not going to go for a run today. Or I'll do, you know, 20 minutes instead of 40 or whatever. So, yeah. yeah. But it is a difficult situation because, you know, biology might be telling us that rest is appropriate at the moment. But, but this might be one of those um, changes that, you know, is adaptive in a natural environment, but in our current environment, where where there's too much energy uh, available, food, and not enough um, physical activity, it might be that actually it is maladaptive. You know, this is a maladaptive adaptation, um, where your hormones are telling you you're tired, but actually you're not, and you should be getting exercise and should be getting out there. So you know, just, we just need to know this so that we can give the right sort of advice, so we can help people and understand what's going on. And I think sometimes, it, and we're talking about tiredness, but what we eat can affect our fatigue. So, you know, if you're eating processed food, high fatty things, sometimes you're going to feel more tired. So there's a whole bunch of like in our environments, as humans, there's so many manufactured things yeah. and our environments are quite different than just like living off the land and like my grandparents who are farmers. So they ate what they produced. And so their whole lives were a lot different on many levels than what we're experiencing today. Yeah. So I think it's a, it's a more complicated with humans, of course. Yeah, of course. I've done very little work um, in terms of working with, with human samples and, and with, with mothers, but it is something that I'd really like to get into. And I'm, I'm doing that with collaboration in terms of my lab, you know, my labs is, is, is a sort of a neuroscience lab. And so we're really interested in getting into the, the actual sort of hardcore neuroscience of what neuron is talking to what neuron and what's it doing at what time and what are those networks and really trying to map out, you know, what is prolactin doing in this part of the brain at this time and how is it doing it? So, we're, you know, we're really sort of trying to cover the, the whole gamut from very um, specific neuroscience of understanding what's going on in the brain through to this translational elements working um, with our colleagues to, to, to look at pregnancy in women. Yeah, I think that's a great, I mean, it's a great combination. You have the full range, essentially, from bench to clinic. Yep, I hope so. So what more could you ask for? <laughs> Money. <laughs> yeah, we... Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, gosh. I think I'm going to... I have so... Everybody I talk to is like money. I'm like, one episode is just going to be everyone saying money. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's we... always an issue, right? Yeah. 
I'm very, very hopeful that that this work will will be funded. It's been it's been well supported by the Health Research Council over the last you know five to ten years. So I hope they continue to do so, and and we will carry on uh, holding the flag for prolactin. You are holding the flag for for prolactin. I don't think anyone else does what you do in the rest of the world. Do uh, they not on the level? I don't think anyone is, is taking quite as broad a view as we are. There's a few people that are looking at specific um, functions, individual functions, yeah. um, but I don't think anyone's tackling it in quite a the sort of broad, big picture way that, that we are. That might, I don't know if that's maybe telling me something that other people are taking a more sensible approach. I don't know, but um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I like trying to piece the whole big, big picture together. You know, why, why would it be doing so many different things? That doesn't make sense. But actually, if you pull it together and saying many different things have to change in pregnancy, and this is the signal, this is the key signal. That's the way I like to think about it. Yeah, I think that's great. Well, I guess I can ask you this. What would you like to see answered in terms of neuroscience of parenting? I was, I was thinking about this, this exact question. I was thinking about it. And I was, because I've been stuck at home for the last month, one of the things I did was clear out my spare room. And, and in the spare room, I had a couple of boxes of stuff that belonged to my daughter. And I was just flicking through some of her books um, that I'd never actually seen before. And I came across this book of essays that was sort of a, um, like a feminist perspective. And one of the, one of the chapters was, why do women die in childbirth? And um, and I was thinking about that exact question is is that not so much dying in childbirth, that's that's a dramatic extreme, but pregnancy is associated with so many complications. You know, probably we have what 10, 15% have significant mental health issues. We have, you know, close to 10% having uh, gestational diabetes. We have a number that have preterm birth. A huge number of pregnancies, a significant proportion, probably well over a quarter, don't go smoothly. And I just, I was thinking, we wouldn't accept that in any other field of medicine. You know, if it, you know, if it was, if it's, I don't know, prostate function or cancer, or you know, we, we just wouldn't accept the fact that, well, 25% of the time it's not going to go well, and we don't quite know why, but we'll hope for the best. And it feels to me that pregnancy has been a bit that way. You know, we just assume it's natural, it's going to work. And, you know, hopefully it'll work out okay. And we just need to do better than that. You know, we really need to understand what are the hormonal pathways that are happening? Why does it sometimes not work? What can we do to help? And so that's really, you know, and I think mental health is a great target because that's so debilitating. It can really destroy what should be an absolutely fantastic experience and have lifelong impact on both the woman and, and on the children and the family and the father, everyone. And we just don't know why this happens, what, you know, why, why sometimes it goes wrong. And so I think the work that you are doing, that I'm doing, that all of our colleagues are doing in this area, just to understand the biology better is so, so critical. And that's what I'd, I'd love to see us, you know, really crack it, really know what's going on so that Actually, women don't have to go through a procedure and think and just hope for the best. It's just we, you know, we can actually help. I agree a hundred percent, and I think that that's, I mean, part of why I'm doing the podcast is to start to revisit research with regards to mummy brain, but also to start 
people having conversations about being curious about the, their bodies, what's happening, what I mean, what do you mean we don't know this? What do you mean this does that? I mean, there's a lack of education out there. And I think we have to start as women as well and society start demanding to that people demanding to know more and why don't we don't know more and how can we improve things and once the public starts to take an interest then hopefully we'll get money to continue to do research in this area but there's a huge neglect of maternal health yeah absolutely yeah and 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 i guess you know i really think it's just this assumption that it'll just work and clearly it doesn't always work completely smoothly and and we, we just need more information. We need better understanding to work out what's going on. And I'm sure the prolactin is going to be part of that. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. So what's the take-home, I guess? I mean, if you want to give us a take-home on prolactin and motherhood, what would it be? The take-home message is that prolactin is much more than simply about lactation. And it's been somewhat crippled by its name. You know, it was given a name 100 years ago when it was identified that it was important for lactation. And because of that, we've overlooked all of the other things that it does. And so the take-home message, I think, is that prolactin is a really critical pregnancy hormone. Lactation is one thing that it does, but it also is so important to so many other systems that are changing during pregnancy. Yeah, well said. Thank you. Thanks, Jody. Questions, comments, suggestions, get in touch at Mommy Brain Revisited on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. You can also contact me on my website at jodipaluski.com. That's J-O-D-I-P-A-W-L-U-S-K-I.com. Looking forward to hearing from you.